Praise God. You appreciate the tenor of this meeting thus far and the covering of God that has just sewn its way through the fabric of this service? It's been wonderful, hasn't it, from the very beginning and Brother Goodwin's foundational statements to start the meeting up to the present. There's just been a consistent course of the Spirit and the Word of God, hasn't there? That's not strange, I imagine, for this assembly at all. That's not strange, I imagine, for this work that's been done in this church for decades now. There's been a course of the Spirit and the Word that's worked in this place for a long time. Thank God for that. Brother Wilkinson was talking in part about the incredible value of the Word of God, the incredible value of the standard that the Word of God has for us, and how important that is. It is what creates all of our decisions. They're driven by the need for us to find the pattern and the purpose of God. We want to know his purpose, but there's a pattern to the way God does things. There's a methodology that God uses. He has ways that he works, and he loves beauty. He loves order. He loves truth. I might say just in passing, though I don't want to say it in passing, Brother Goodwin, how beautiful all the improvements and enhancements are here. To look back, is that the Jordan that I'm looking at when I look through that window? It's a river, isn't it? I'll imagine it's the Jordan if it's not. To look at this beautiful landscape behind us, including the brethren, that's a beautiful part of the landscape, isn't it? But to see this beautiful picture here, to see all the beautiful improvements that have been done around the assembly, I'm going to be honest with you, and I hope I'm honest with you in anything I say, but when you first told me, Brother Goodwin, the colors you were going to use, I, I just smiled and nodded. I was thinking in my mind, oh my Lord, but isn't it beautiful? How beautiful, the improvements and enhancements that have been done here and... That's been the case through the years, hasn't it? That there's always been a work that God has been doing in these places where God has set his name, where he's placed his name, where he's recorded his name. He records his name in some places, doesn't he? He records his name there for a purpose, though, and his name is a holy name. And so wherever he records his name, he has a holy purpose behind what he intends to do in that place. So I, as well, Brother Wilkinson, had a number of notes. I've got pages of notes that I took from the things that were said, such good statements, and there were several, as there almost always is in a meeting where God is working, there were several channels, there were several topics, several main themes so far. One of them has been related to holiness, the idea that we don't want to lose our identity. Brother Dumiso mentioned that. He talked about we don't want to lose our identity. Brother Richard and Brother Goodwin and others mentioned that as well. The fact that our identity is precious, you know, you won't lose your identity if you realize how precious it is. If you're carrying a wallet with you with nothing really in it, you've got your AAA card and maybe your library card, I don't have one, but maybe whatever you've got in there, but you have no money and you lost your license a long time ago, Brother Wilkinson, and there's nothing of value in there, you might lay that anywhere and not even have any concern whatsoever if anything happened to it. But if you had something precious inside that wallet, you'd probably be pretty careful where you put it down, wouldn't you? You'd probably be pretty careful where you left it. We've got something precious, saints. What God has given this people is something precious. We don't want to lose our identification. We use that uh, acronym, I suppose it's an acronym, ID for your identification. It really stands for identifying documents. There's some documents that identify us. You know, this is the identifying document of the body of Jesus Christ. You know what's occurred in this generation that Brother Goodwin so beautifully was describing? There's even beauty in some of the negative things because that's the precursors of God moving in a mighty way. 
The darkness that we see in this world right now is the precursor of God moving in a mighty way. So even in some of those things, there's some beauty, but one of the things that's occurred, of course, in our day is that Christianity has lost their connection to the Scripture. One of the things that struck me as you were talking about some of these elements and these lists and what good lists those were, were that Christianity has lost their connection to the identifying document that allows them to be Christian. If they would trust in the Scripture, if they would be obedient to the Scripture, it's not just believing in it. There's a lot of people believe in things they aren't willing to be obedient to. You hear that all the time in Christianity. I have faith in Jesus, but you're not faithful to Him. Faith is not faith without faithfulness. There isn't any faith that's not faithful. It's not real faith. Real faith requires you to not just believe it, but to act on that belief, to be obedient to your belief. Unfortunately, Christianity has been slipping away, and I was thinking that Brother Goodwin had mentioned superficial Christianity. I've got it written down here in societal acceptance, you know, trying to look for some way to fit in better with society. And superficial Christianity usually goes by another name as well, hypocrisy, meaning a hypocrite, surface-level sanctification. You look good on the outside. It looks like you've got it together. You're at least presenting yourself that way, but inside are dead men's bones. God forbid. I was reading something here lately, and I'd been seeing a lot of articles written about culturally compromised Christianity and how Christianity is compromising with the culture. And I saw a little blurb that someone had written I thought was very interesting that they said, the problem isn't just culturally compromised Christianity, it's cultural Christianity. And I had to think about that for a minute. What's the difference between cultural Christianity and culturally compromised? All of us know what culturally compromised is. It's when we lower the standard of Christianity, whatever that standard is, whether it's dress, whether it's actions, whether it's our language, whether it's where we go, how we act, we lower the standard of what it means to be Christian down to the level of the cultural, or like Brother Wilkinson so absolutely beautifully put it here, we might say we're above the culture, but if the culture keeps dropping, we're dropping with them if we're just maintaining that level. We have a higher calling than just to maintain a distance from the culture. This is a greater place God's called us to, saints, than just to be a little over the culture. Well, I'm not as bad as they are. Thank God you're not as bad as they are, but we're not as good as he is. And our call is to be as good as he is, not just better than they are. So this other, I had never thought of this before, may be very obvious to many of you, but this one author had a few sentences he wrote about what he called cultural Christianity, and he I had to agree with him. He said that Christianity, in people's minds, Christianity is shrinking. It's getting smaller. It's under siege. And he said, it's not Christianity that's shrinking. It's cultural Christianity. And he explained that by saying there are a lot of people that like the culture of Christianity. They like the church. They like the music. They like the fellowship. They like to be able to call themselves Christian, maybe even politically speaking, to be able to say they're Christian to appeal to their constituents but they never really were Christian. They just included themselves in the culture of Christianity. You know, usually what happens when people include themselves in the culture, they're not really dedicated. Cultural Christians aren't going to be out on a Wednesday night or Thursday night or whenever you have a midweek service. Cultural Christians are going to be doing the minimal amount necessary to be able to call themselves Christians. The problem is you can't call yourself a Christian. That definition is divinely done. You aren't a Christian because you decide that I'm going to carry out some of this. You are because God looks at you and says, well done, thou good and thou faithful servant. We're all striving for that, aren't we? 
They said there's a lot of cultural Christians, and I had never thought of it, as I said, in that terminology before, but it struck home with me. They said the church is not shrinking. Cultural Christians are leaving the church because the pressures of the world, they never wanted to deal with those. They didn't want to have those kind of standards. They're willing to go along with it as long as they didn't have to stand out. They're willing to go along with it as long as things would be comfortable, as long as church was comfortable. It wasn't comfortable for Christ, was it? Christianity is not a comfortable thing, but it's the most incredible thing you'll ever experience. Jesus has a yoke, and it is easy, and his burden is light, but it's still a yoke, and it's still a burden. There's still a responsibility, Brother Wilkinson was talking about, that we have to do in response to what God has done for us. And I completely and absolutely agree, Brother Wilkinson, there is nothing we can do alone to do it, but our response to grace ought to demand that we try to do something with it. It ought to demand of us that we try to do something. So God's given us something special, saints. He's given us a divinely designed operation. This was not a man-made operation God has allowed us to be a part of. It's custom-crafted. It's not cookie-cutter. There's a big difference if you have something that's been custom done. I've seen people, when I worked at the bank, we had people that would come get loans to get a custom-designed home or a custom-built home. That's a little more difficult than a cookie-cutter. You know exactly what the value of a cookie-cutter home is going to be, usually a whole lot lower. But a custom-designed home or a custom-crafted home has elements in it you may not find anywhere else. Maybe the designer looked at that and he said, I really want to have some built-in shelves or something else. It's an absolutely unique design that you could go anywhere else and never see it. Brother Moore's son-in-law is one of the finest finished carpenters I have ever seen. He's, he's out here somewhere, Brother Richard Shecks. He could custom craft you a home. You'd have some design work in that home nobody on this earth would have. But it takes a special talent. It takes a special ability It takes something unique to custom craft something and not just create a cookie cutter type of situation. Do you realize the body of Jesus Christ is custom crafted? It was built according to a pattern. You know, if you go back to Exodus 25, 40 and other parts of Exodus where it describes the building of the tabernacle and it talks about the fact that when Moses went up into the mount, it said, do not, I'm going to modernize the language just slightly. He says, do not deviate from the pattern that you were given in the mount. Don't move one inch from the pattern you were given in the mount. That was a custom pattern. That wasn't Moses' design of what he would have liked the pattern to look like, how Moses might have desired to build the tabernacle. That was a custom design that was given by God. And over in Hebrews 8, it expands on that just a little bit. It's the fifth verse, I believe, where he says, how does he say it in Hebrews 8, 5? See that thou make all things according to the pattern that was showed to thee in the mount. Now, you know, he was talking about the old covenant tabernacle. He wasn't talking about the new covenant church. Hebrews is a, one of the most beautiful, if not the most beautiful, examples of writing in the Scripture that is making a contrast between the old and the new covenant. Throughout there is better, 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 best, excellent. All those kind of words contrasting the old covenant with the new covenant. When that statement was made in Hebrews, it does have a symbolic application for us. We don't want to deviate from the pattern. We want to create it according to the pattern that was showed. But do you realize that that was talking about the old covenant pattern? In the very next verse, the sixth verse, it says, but he has obtained a more excellent ministry by how much more he is also the mediator of a better covenant that's built on better promises. 
Do you realize that old covenant, as limited as it was, was built according to a very precise pattern? Do you think this is going to be any less? There's going to be a greater pattern than even what was done for the tabernacle. As glorious as it was, do you realize that when that tabernacle was set up, they didn't just light the fire on the altar to start burning sacrifices? The glory of God descended from heaven, went right through that holy place, out through the tabernacle, and lit the fire on that altar. Do you know God's going to do that again? Throughout this meeting, we've been talking about the restoration of the church. And I was just tingling under that as you were talking about those things. Some of those things you were mentioning, Brother Goodwin, are things that we don't have yet. Don't you want them? My Lord, I want those things. That's part of what Brother Wilkinson was talking about when he said we need to have this great internal desire for righteousness. Jesus used this phrase in the Sermon on the Mount among the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. I told our folks here lately, I had several coming to me saying, you know, I've got such a desire for righteousness, I just don't know how I'll ever get to that level. And I said, don't lose your desire. You want to know how you're going to be an overcomer one day? Never lose your terrible hunger for overcoming. Because if you'd never lose that passion, you will be an overcomer one day. He said, blessed are they who hunger and thirst. After righteousness, they'll be filled, praise his holy name. That means if you never lose your hunger, God will fill your hunger. If you never lose your thirst, God will fill your thirst. Our responsibility is to never lose our momentum, never lose our personal desire for the things of God, which has been appealed to you throughout this meeting. My God in heaven, saints, let's not lose our hope. Let's not lose our desire. Let's not lose the pattern God's given us. He gave them a pattern. He's given us a pattern. The standard of holiness that he's given us. It includes our dress and our attitude. It includes our doctrine. It includes our methodology, our order. It includes how we do things. There's a holy way of doing things. And there's an unholy way of doing things. The way we talk to each other, the way we interact with each other. We can be unholy in our communication. I personally would have to 100% agree with you, Brother Wilkinson. It would be unholy. hope no one's doing it right this moment. It'd be unholy to be on Facebook checking your status or whatever else in the middle of a service. Why would you want to be doing that when God is moving like this? God has been moving so powerfully through this meeting. What would distract you from the work of God except the adversary? So don't disrespect God, absolutely. Let's not be superficial Christians. Let's not bend to societal acceptance. It struck me so heavily when this man wrote this little blurb, just a couple sentences. I don't believe Christianity is shrinking. Not true Christianity. The inflated element of Christianity that never was truly Christian is beginning to fall away. That happens periodically. It happens all the time. But do you really believe the church, the living God, is weaker than it was? It better not be. If God's church is weaker, then we're in serious trouble, aren't we? I believe God's church is stronger, and it's getting stronger. I believe we're headed toward an expected end that somebody mentioned here. We have an expected end, and it's not just our expectation. If it was just my expectation, if I had something on my mind that I would like to accomplish in my life, that'd be my expectation for my end. We're not depending on our expectation. It's God's expectation that we have in front of us. We've got an expected end that the divine architect has laid out for us. The sovereign God of heaven has already put in place an expected end for his people. You and I get to be a part of that. Isn't that an incredible thing? That alone should cause you not to want to deviate from the pattern, shouldn't it?
I had heard Brother Singh here say not long ago, and someone, I think it was Brother Dumiso, mentioned being spiritual chameleons. What a poetic phrase that is, Brother Singh. I don't know if you originated that, but I would imagine you probably did. Being spiritual chameleons. I've had this thought on my mind here the last few years that we've got to be catalysts. You know what a catalyst is? Catalyst is an ingredient that's added to something that changes everything it touches. It, it is not changed by what it's added to. It changes what it's added to. There's a lot of things, if you introduce them into a mixture, they'll just get blended in and they'll disappear into the mixture. And you won't be able to pick them out anymore. But you drop a catalyst into something, it changes everything it touches. And it cannot be changed. It only changes. Do you know God is looking for catalytic Christians? Not chameleons, not somebody just going along, adaptable, I think is the word I heard you use, brother, saying. Not just adaptable Christians, but catalytic Christians. Christians that aren't changed by culture, but there is such a covering of the spirit and power of God on their lives that wherever they go, they affect change. They can't help but affect change. God is with them, and God is a transformative God, saints. He transforms things. There's another phrase you could use. Let's not be conformers. Let's not conform to the world. Let's be transformers. Transform, don't conform. Romans 12, 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of the God of heaven. You know how you prove what God's will is? If God can transform you, he's proving to the whole world There is somebody I have enacted my will upon, and that person has been transformed, changed from the old into the new. Praise his holy name. Thank God for the transformative power of God's word, transformative power of God's spirit. Praise his holy name. And there's a transformative power in the pattern God sets. It may not seem like that. It may seem restrictive sometimes when you're given standards of operation, you know. You have to do it this way. It has to be made like this. But you know what the problem is? If there is no standard of operation, the product will have a much lower level of quality. You see these ISOs, and I'm no expert on that, international standards organizations sometimes on businesses. That means they have to hold themselves, they are holding themselves to a level of accountability regarding the products they're making. There is no higher standard accountability than the word of the living God. We have to hold ourselves accountable to that, don't we? We ought to be thrilled with the standards God's given us. Do you realize the restrictions God's given us are the elements that produce everlasting life? The restrictions God's given us, I mean that in a wide range, but the restrictions in terms of what we can believe, how we can act, how we can present ourselves to the world are the restrictions that are the hope of immortality and everlasting life. That's what will produce it is these particular parameters that God puts around us. We ought to be proud of those things. We ought to take honor in those. We've got to hold them. These men, all these songs were beautiful, Brother Goodwin. Every one of them was beautiful. They did a beautiful job. These men that sang here the other day just touched my heart. I'm not one often to run the aisles. That would take some real moving of the Spirit for me to take off and run around the aisles. It's so out of character with me. I almost took off the platform when I was listening to that. <laughs> Let it be, Lord, if it's your will. If the Lord will move my legs, I don't want to be the one moving them, but... <laughs> You all did such a beautiful job, so powerful. <laughs> You're going to make me jump off there now, aren't you? Part of that song that stuck out to me in the context of this messages that have been running through this meeting were when they made this statement that we're called out to lift up a standard, called out to lift up a banner. We need to remember that we're called out. 
Look, there's several calls you might add in there if you wanted to be poetic about it. We're called out, to be called in, to be called up. But you're never going to be called in until you're called out. And you're not going to be called in until you come out. You can be called out and want to stay in. You can want to stay back in that old world, the old ways. You really want to come in, you've got to come all the way out. When God brought Israel up to the Red Sea, there's a beautiful picture of this. You know, he didn't allow them a whole lot of opportunity to go back. He closed those doors in all kinds of pretty significant ways. Not only did that sea close behind them after they went through it, which would have made it hard to go back that route, not only that happened, but he ended the lives of the prime generation of Egypt just before he let them free, which means you would be suicidal to go back. Your God had just taken the lives of all their firstborn sons. And then on top of that, he took the lives of their army that pursued you. You would be a fool to go back into Egypt after that. You know, some of them were grumbling and wanting to go back over some food. And some of the list in there I wouldn't eat if you, you wouldn't matter what you put on it. Leeks, that doesn't even sound good in any way you pronounce it. They had to not only be called out, he told them this. He said, I've called you out that I might call you in. You know, you've got to come out of the world. We're not trying to get close to the world. We're trying to get as far from the world as we can. We've been called out. And where God's called us to is so much better than where he called us from. And if we'll be called out and called in, one of these days we'll be called up. Praise his holy name. That's the high calling of God in Christ Jesus that we want to be called up to, isn't it? We ought to be excited about the regulations God's given us. That's the rule book that's going to get us to the end of our journey. There's a story that told the young people several times in some of the meetings that has always stood out to me in this area. There's a phrase that came into being, I think, after probably the 17 and 1800s, you may know, Brother Goodwin, about nailing your standard to the mast. It's a nautical phrase regarding if you're in a battle of some kind, and quite often, especially in the 17th, 18th century in particular, the type of naval warfare, nautical conditions that there were, they would have a main mast that the standard, the flag, was flying on, and and that would tell you if that flag was lowered that they had surrendered. If there was a battle and they lowered the flag down, that would let you know they surrendered. That's one of the ways they could let you know, we're done, we've had enough of a fight, we don't want to fight anymore. We'll lower the standard down. You know I'm talking about two different things here, right? You lower the flag And one of the things that they would do to try to, it was psychological warfare really, though sometimes it would work in a very literal sense, they would target the main mass with their cannonballs. If we can knock the main mass down and say it's a fleet of ships, and the flagship's main mast is flying its banner high, and we can knock the main mast down, and that banner goes down, the other ships may not realize it's been shot down, and they're looking for the flagship, and they see the flagship, and there's no flag flying, they assume the flagship has surrendered, and then they surrender. Well, that phrase, nailing the standards of mast, originated in, I think, a battle around 1797 during the French Revolutionary Wars. The English were fighting an adversary, I think it was Admiral Duncan, and his flagship was the Venerable, and in the middle of that battle, somebody hit the main mast, the cannonball, and the top of that mast was taken off, and the flag fell to the deck. And there was a sailor there who, I think in Sunderland in England, you may have seen it. There's a memorial to him, a statue of him. It's a pretty picturesque statue. It shows a man climbing up the main mast with one of those old pistols. And he's got the butt of that pistol getting ready to hammer the flag back onto the mast. His name was Jack Crawford. 
Jack Crawford, just an old sailor that knew his business, he knew that if they see that that flag has fallen, the other ships are going to surrender. And even though we're winning the battle, listen, even though the English were winning, if they had surrendered at that point, they would have lost the battle. And the English were actually winning. So Jack Crawford climbed up that mainmast in the middle of all that hail of gunfire and cannonballs going by. And according to the legend, with a pistol in his hand, took the butt of that pistol, the flag and a nail, and hammered the ensign, hammered the flag back onto the mainmast so the other ships could see that the flag was still there. You know, that's what we're trying to do in a world like this. This world would love to take out the mainmast of the church. This is part of that. Christ is part of that. If they can undermine our trust in, in this... If they can undermine our confidence in Christ, the flag will fall and the standard will come down. You know, we've got to make some irreversible actions in terms of our decisions and say, I'm going to nail the standard to the mast. Irreversible action. No surrender. No retreat from this world. I know what I believe and I will stand by my beliefs. And no matter what happens, I'm going to nail my commitment to the mast. And I'm going to stand with God and God's people. Praise His holy name. Praise His holy name. So nail your standard to the mass, saints. This is the kind of day we need. There are cannonballs flying past the church. There's gunfire going on. There are lead balls flying in all directions. There's all kinds of damage that can be taken. But if you'll stand by the old rugged cross, praise His holy name, you'll be safe. Praise God. Praise His holy name. said about Jesus in the 11th chapter of Isaiah, around the 10th verse, in that day... There will be a root of Jesse that will stand for an ensign, an ensign for the people. That standard is going to be raised up before all the people. Look, our standards are not just based on tradition. Our standards are based on the person of Jesus. There is no person in all of creation that was holier than Jesus. People say, well, we don't need to have holiness standards. Well, if we don't want to be like Jesus, you're absolutely right. If you're not concerned with becoming like Jesus, you can have any standard you want. But if you want to be like Jesus, you're going to have to have the standard that is the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Praise His holy name. That's our standard. It can't be lowered. That's a perfect man. That standard can't be brought down. We bring that standard down. We bring everything down. And we will keep pace with the world. And if we're not careful, we won't just keep pace with its fall. We'll be sucked up in the tide pool of that fall as well and end up underneath. So there's a beauty to holiness. Holiness is not a terrible thing. I think it's so interesting in that story of Jehoshaphat, how 20th chapter of Second Chronicles, isn't it? When they were so concerned about the enemy coming against Israel. This is an interesting thing to let you know what will get God on your side real quick. They were so concerned about the enemies overtaking Israel. And Jehoshaphat did exactly what a man of God ought to do. He fell down on his face, said, God, just tell us what to do. We have enemies on every side. Some of the strangest instructions through some of that prophetic instruction. Send the singers out. Send the singers out in front. And when they go out, let them praise the Lord in the beauties of holiness. Beauties. Beauties. Holiness is beautiful, saints. Do you know who defines beauty? It's God. And holiness is the most beautiful thing to the God of heaven. And they were walking out there praising the Lord and the beauties of holiness, and complete confusion came on their enemies. Do you know what will allow us to have the Lord on our side in a day like this when we need Him so direly? 
Holiness, saints. The closer we can get to God, the more power we'll have with God. The closer we can get to God, the more security we'll have in God. So let's not lose any of our identifying documents. Let's keep on identifying with God. Don't lose your identity with God. People in this world ought not to wonder if you're a child of God. You ought not to have to tell them. Somebody mentioned here, it might have been you, Brother Goodwin, mentioned here, Brother Richard might have as well. That was such a powerful and wonderful sermon yesterday, wasn't it? One of you, brethren, mentioned the fact that you used to be able to go out in the world, or somebody did, I was talking to, you used to be able to go out in the world and someone would say, I know where they're from. That's a Pentecostal person right there based on their dress. But you know, it wasn't just dress. You know how many times that I've heard stories, and I've been in the midst of several of them, where came from a church service and went out to eat somewhere, and maybe almost everybody there was dressed similar. It was a Sunday, and people might have been dressed in their Sunday best. But there was a feeling that was carried in, in the wings. And when those folks came in, somebody could just tell, come over to the table, you all are Pentecostal people, aren't you? Now, look, they might have been sitting down at the table. You might not have been able to see if they had long pants on or a skirt on. All you saw is people sitting there. But it isn't just what you see, it's what you feel. It's the real thing. It's not to be a replica. It's got to be the real thing. I had a friend of mine growing up, I was just telling our local folks about this here a few weeks ago, that was determined to have, if you all know what this car is, it was a very popular car back in the 80s when I was a teenager, he was determined to have a Lamborghini Countach, which at that time was one of the most expensive cars on the planet, several hundred thousand dollars for this sports car, beautiful car, you know, those doors that open like wings and all the little fancy gigas, oh, I wanted one too. I never had any hope I was going to get one, but he did. And he was going to find a way to get one one way or another, so he determined he started getting these kit car magazines. I don't know if you know what a kit car is, but it's where you basically get the frame of a pretty cheap car, and you build on that frame a model that looks just like a real expensive car. And the more expensive the kit is, the closer it looks to the real thing. And he was determined to buy a kit car, which probably still would have cost $20,000 to put it together, buy a kit car, and he would be driving around town, you know, and I'm sure thinking all the girls are going to think, oh, look at him, driving around a Lamborghini. How in the world does he afford that? He took me with him one time to look at somebody that had built one, and it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same in any stretch of the imagination. (laughs) It wasn't the same in the way it drove. It putted along, you know, it didn't go from zero to 60 in four seconds. It took about 40 seconds to get there. That thing didn't feel real sturdy. The plastic was kind of bendy, you know, it wasn't real solid. If the doors went up at all, you had to do it with manual labor. There wasn't anything automatic about it. It wasn't the real thing. It was a cheap replica. Much of Christianity has become a cheap replica of the real thing. We want the real thing, don't we? God has called us to produce the real thing, saints. And we ought not to be afraid to identify ourselves as the real thing. I don't mean in an elitist way or in some kind of an insulated way that we say we're better. I mean that we ought not to be afraid to say we're the children of the Most High God. We ought not to be afraid to take a stand. We ought not to be afraid to be different. We were divinely designed to be different. God wants us to be different. And if we want the best things from God, we're going to have to be different like God wants us to be different. We'll lose so much of what we could receive if we're not. There's all kinds of examples in the Bible of that. I just got a couple on my mind here. One of them was the Israelites at Passover. You realize if the Israelites hadn't put the blood on their door, they wouldn't have been protected from that condition, that death angel passing through Egypt. But do you realize any person putting the blood on their door was making a declaration? I believe. 
Now, if you were afraid, if you were embarrassed, if you weren't sure about whether this would work and you were afraid the neighbors aren't going to do it either, you know, and they're going to look over at my house and say, look at that idiot. He did what Moses said, put that blood on his door. It might have been tough. The Egyptians, maybe they'll make fun of me too. What are you worried about what the Egyptians have to say? But they might have been worried about that. You realize just putting that blood on your little and doorpost was a statement? I believe. I believe in this. I have confidence in this. You know, we ought not to be afraid to make our stand for Jesus, put his blood on the little and doorposts of our home. Esther's an example of that. When Mordecai, of course, challenged Esther and he said, look, if you're not going to make this decision, God will have it done. God has a sovereign intent to deliver his people. He is going to have this done. And if you're not the one who does it, God will find somebody else, but his people are going to be delivered. And he said to Esther, it may just be that you were born, you were brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. Look, we're living in one of the darkest, I personally feel, sin has always been sin. But the opportunity to sin is far aggravated in our present world. Some of the very benefits we have in terms of technology have opened doors to sin that somebody in a rural lifestyle 100 years ago wouldn't have imagined access to some of the things that someone can get access to with a few button pushes. This is a very dangerous world we're living in. This is a very desperate time to be alive. And it may seem as if that's a great burden on you if you've got to bear the responsibility of holiness in a generation like this. But if you do, it's because God called you to such an hour as this and he knows that there is something within you that can do what he's asking. Brother Richard talked in part about John the Baptist and such a powerful example John is of that. I like that phrase. I was jotting it down, oddly enough, Brother Richard, right before you were saying it, so our minds were just in sync on that. John the Baptist was not a reed shaken by the wind, was he? Jesus said, what did you go out the wilderness to see? Were you looking for a reed shaken in the wind? There is going to be a church coming out of the wilderness, leaning on his arms. And I can promise you, anyone looking for that church isn't going to be looking for a reed shaken in the wind. It's going to be a strong, stalwart group of individuals who will not be moved from their relationship with the Lord. He said, what'd you go forth in the wilderness? What'd you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaking in the wind? Somebody dressed in soft clothing? We're not here to wear soft clothing, are we? John the Baptist had a different diet, and John the Baptist had a different dress code. And we do too. People ought to look at us and say, that is different there. That's different. That's not like everybody else. Thank God, divinely different. People ought to say that diet that they eat, that's different. That's not what everybody else is eating. I mean doctrine. That's different than everybody else. Somebody said, come and see. One of the brothers in Africa said, come and see. Well, I say, taste and see. There's something to this doctrine that if you'll taste it, And if you'll have an open mind, you may just find out this is better than anything you've ever experienced. I can't imagine eating locusts and wild honey. Half of that sounds great. (laughs) You figure out which half you like, but I can't imagine too many aren't going to be on my side. Honey sounds all right, doesn't it? I don't know what it would take to get me to eat locusts. But I'm going to tell you what. There is something about the diet of the doctrine that God has given us. There are some sweet things, and there are some things that are bitter. They're harder. They're more difficult. But that diet will produce the kind of men and women of God like John the Baptist, mighty men and women of God. Said of John the Baptist, I think Brother Richard quoted this, he's a prophet, but he's more than a prophet. 
Isn't that a strange statement? A prophet and more than a prophet, because he's more than just one of the prophets. He was the forerunner of Jesus Christ, and he was standing in a place that no other prophet had ever stood. All of the rest of them had looked out sometimes centuries towards Jesus, saw a flash of insight. He was the first prophet that was going to get to lay hands on the Redeemer and actually to touch him, to baptize Jesus, and to see him with his own eyes. He was more than a prophet. You know there's going to be a people in this last day they are going to see Jesus again? They're going to be more than just what common Christianity is. This is something special, saints. This is something different, saints. And thank God for the borders He's given us. They keep us inside the kingdom. They keep us within His favor. Praise His holy name. John was unswayed by majority opinion. You're going to have to be too in a day like this. John wasn't pressured by the carnal pressures of society. Well, you don't want to be preaching this or saying this. He was unswayed by majority opinion. He was unmoved by winds of doctrine. That's, you get real deep symbolically with the fact that he wasn't a reed shaken by the wind. There wasn't going to be some wind of doctrine come along or some cultural current that was going to move John. John was a man of God and he stayed a man of God to the end. Praise his holy name. And then there's one other thing Brother Goodwin said that I thought was so beautiful that was so simple in the midst of all that deeper intellectual elements that were so meaty and good. Right at the end of that, he said something that almost seemed like it was out of place. He said, we've got a bright future. Isn't that wonderful? Now, historically speaking, you know what he was talking about. That early church was headed towards a fall. It fell away. Their future wasn't bright. Their present was very bright, but the future wasn't bright. We've got the brightest future of any people in the history of the church. We've got wonderful things ahead for us, saints. And I was thinking as, I think Brother, might have been you, Brother Richard, mentioned Jesus' statement on the cross when he was talking to the thief in that little comma where he said to the thief, I say unto thee today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. That's part of our bright future, you know, that same future he was promising that thief struck me here not long ago when I was reading that some few years ago. The pause, I think, there is a little bit longer than we give credit. That little comma isn't just a comma to tell us to pause for a second. I say unto you, today, you'll be with me in paradise. That's true, and I completely agree. It is referring to he's, he's making a statement on that day. But there's something even more powerful than that. What kind of day was that that he was making that statement on? What was going on? Jesus was dying. The sky was darkening. It looked like he was defeated. It looked like there was no hope. What an incredible time for that man to say, I'm on your side. Who would do that in a day like that? Here is the man that has claimed that he is the Messiah, at least maybe not directly, but indirectly many times, and certainly claimed it. Here he is, and he's hanging on a cross, and his blood is leaving his body. He's near to death. The sky is getting dark. He's being mocked. He has been abused. And he's hanging on a cross in apparent complete defeat. And he turns to that man and says, I say to you, today. Now there's a pregnant pause that ought to be inserted there, not just a little quick pause. Today, while my blood is leaking out onto this ground. Today, while they're mocking me. Today, while it looks like there's no hope whatsoever. Today, while my disciples are leaving me. Today, while the whole world looks like it's one. And here is the great hope of the world dying on a cross. 
Today, I can say to you, because it's not done, and what you're looking at is not defeat, it's victory, praise His holy name. I can say to you today, in the midst of all this darkness, hope is coming, praise the holy God of heaven. Praise His holy name, saints, praise His holy name. Praise the Lord. Too much at stake, I've come too far to turn back now. Every battle that I have fought will soon be forgotten. I'm trading this old cross in for a crown. And now I know it won't be long, we'll soon see the ones that have gone. Now it's up to us to win this race. A banquet like we've never known will be held at royal throne And there will be rewarded for our faith I'm not going to walk away I've got too much at stake I've come too far to turn back now Every battle that I have fought will soon be forgotten I'm trading this old cross in for a crown I started out with a made of mind to one day cross the finish line. I'm pressing toward the mark and for the prize. At times I've had to stand my ground as Satan's tried to turn me around. But I will not be hindered by his lies. I'm not going to walk away. I've got too much at stake. I've come too far to turn back now. Every battle that I have fought will soon be forgotten. I'm trading this old cross in for a crown. And now I know it won't be long. We'll soon see the ones that have gone. Now it's up to us to win this race. A banquet like we've never known will be held at God's royal throne and there will be rewarded for our faith. I've got to walk away, I've got too much at stake, I've come too far to turn back now. Every battle that I have fought will soon be forgotten, I'm trading this old cross in for a crown. I'm not gonna walk away, I've got, I've got too much at stake, I've come too far to turn back now. All that I have fought will soon be forgotten, I'm trading this old cross in for a crown. I've got to walk away, I've got too much at stake, I've come too far to turn back now. God, I'm trading this old cross in for a crown. 
I'm not gonna walk away. I've got too much at stake. I've come too far to turn back now. Every battle that I have fought will soon be forgotten. I'm trading this old cross in for a crown. I'm not gonna walk away. I've got too much at stake. I've come too far to turn back now. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah.